Romans chapter 3. The text in the bulletin and the text on the screen is uh, verses 21 to 26. But this morning we will just be in verse 21. The title is The Center and the Heart, and I stole that from another theologian. Um, But the context of where we are in the book of Romans, when we come to Romans chapter 3, verse 20, uh, it is a mic drop at verse 20 of the judgment and the righteousness of God. So when we get to Romans 3.20, last week I called that stage one. It's stage one of the gospel. We get nowhere with the gospel without really understanding thoroughly stage one. And so what's beautiful in Paul the Apostle's presentation of the gospel of Jesus Christ is he starts with the plight of humanity. And so for us who sometimes feel this tension of being a Christian in a society and in a world and in our companies and wherever we walk, we feel that, 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 that kind of ongoing pressure to conform. Maybe some of us even long for what we would call the good old days when our country was a Christian country, if ever that were true. I'm not sure it was ever true, but, but this idea of we long for something to be easier, to be easier to be a Christian. Paul addresses all of that. And and basically, when he gets to verse 20 of chapter 3, he's like, the law of God has been broken by every single human being that ever existed. Those who know the law and disobey it stand under judgment. Those who don't know the law have made the law on themselves and they haven't even kept their own law. They're under judgment. The Jew is under judgment. The Greek is under judgment. The Gentile is under judgment. So when he gets to chapter 20, he ends it by saying, so that every mouth may be silenced. And there's a powerful picture of a courtroom there. And he uses all these forensic terms in describing the gospel. He says, when you get to that point, you have no excuse, you have no hope, and I call it, you're on the chasm. You're standing on the edge of a chasm and that chasm is the difference between you and God's righteousness and 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 where it falls short so that's where we left in verse 21 Uh, as John Stott says all human beings of every race and rank every creed and culture Jews Gentiles the immoral and the moralizing the religious and the irreligious are without an excuse they're sinful guilty inexcusable and speechless before God He says, this was the terrible human predicament described. There was no ray of light, no flicker of hope, no prospect of rescue. Now, before we read 21, I want to make sure that you have grasped what he has said there. Think of it this way. Um, Will Smith is now famous for something that he didn't intend to be famous for. Right? Someone sent me a, something on Instagram, and it was like Will Smith's book. And when you open it, a hand comes out and slaps you. you know? <laughs> I, I laughed. At, I, so maybe you've seen the slapping incident from Will Smith. Um, but if you haven't, if you're one of the five people in America that hasn't seen it, um, Chris Rock is doing his funny thing, and he starts busting on Will Smith's wife. She has some form of alopecia, and I forget what he says, something about it. And Will Smith from the audience says, hey, you better stop that. And he keeps going, and Will Smith walks up and slaps him. Now, maybe 90% of the country hated it. I loved it. I guess I just confess, man, it, you say something to Tammy Linda Kuyper, you know, I'm going to leave my Sunday school at the door and uh, go upside the head. You know, uh, 
I, I, I don't know. I mean, it was just this, I mean, it was like Hollywood was appalled, you know, and it was like, whatever, right? I mean, those who, those men who love their wives, who love their daughters, you know, they're like, dude, the guy had it coming, right? I mean, did he grow up without any men around him? Of course, the guy had it coming, right? Okay, so sorry, that's not in the Bible. That's just Mark. That's free. Um, but here, think about it this way. What if, what if instead of it being Chris Rock, okay, let's say there is a Ukrainian refugee girl, okay, and, and she's playing this violin in front of everybody, but this violin was the only thing she rescued from her blown-up house, and she's missing a hand, and so the, the, the bow is attached to her hand, and, and she's playing this violin, and Will Smith walks up to her and slaps her across the face. That'd be a little different, wouldn't it? Right? That'd be a lot different, wouldn't it? Still, in that illustration, there is an understanding of the grades of sin. So when a finite being, Will Smith, might sin against another finite being, right? I, I see that, and I think, well, Chris Rock had it coming because... Chris Rock was sinning against Will Smith and his wife. All right, so here's a, here's a sinful man smacking another sinful man. Like, that, there's enough said. There's no judgment, no penalty needs to be done, right? Uh, a, a finite sinner sinning against a finite sinner. But even if we took a finite sinner sinning against another finite sinner, this little girl, this fake scenario that I set up, we would feel a sense of justice and judgment, wouldn't we? Every one of you sitting in here was like, what? He would never do that, right? It's a sin against a sinner, but does that sinner deserve it? So uh, listen to me, people. When a human being sins, all of it is against an infinite God. And as much as we would say that little girl doesn't deserve to be slapped, which she doesn't, right? Our God is slapped in the face, in his glory. Whenever we sin, not just against human beings, but ultimately all of it being against him. Okay, so that is, that is stage one of the gospel. And if, if we don't get stage one of the gospel, uh, then, then we think we have a small Jesus, we have a small gospel, we, we think ourselves deserving his pleasure, but you have got to get it. And that's what Stott was saying, and that's what we spent weeks going through Romans, and it was tedious. I know, it was tedious, week after week. Like, you're not enough, you're not enough, that's not enough, that's not enough. And so when we come to verse 21, people, it, it's glorious. It's, it's glorious. This verse that we're going to get is so glorious. Here's what, here's what some people have said about it. I haven't even read it yet. It's in there. Don't read ahead. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones says, there are no more wonderful words in the whole of Scripture than just these two words, but now. Professor Cranfield, Charles Cranfield, uh, the center and the heart of the whole main section of the letter. Leon Morris, possibly the most important single paragraph ever written. Here's what I love, and uh, Tammy just fixed my old Bible, and I write all in my Bible. Um, in, in the margin of Martin Luther's Bible, called the Luther Bible, in the margin next to this text, Martin Luther 
wrote in, the chief point and the very central place of the epistle and of the whole Bible. Romans 3, 21. Uh, Let's stand for the reading of God's holy word. But now, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time, so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. The grass withers and the flower fades. The word of our God will stand forever. You may be seated. Potholes and the abyss. So if we grasp stage one, we look at the sinfulness of our own hearts, the things we've done and the things we've left undone. We don't look at it in some sense as a pothole on the path of life. I just need this filled in. Jesus, fill this in. Take care of this. Um, We see it really as an abyss. And the picture in my mind is I I took a whole bunch of students one year to Nepal. We did a trip through orphanages, and uh, it was was an amazing trip. But we had one fun day, and it was whitewater rafting. Well, it was whitewater rafting in in Nepal is not like whitewater rafting in the U.S., where the government makes sure the rafts are good. We get into these rafts, the the river's just nuts. I mean, it's just, it's more than any river I'd ever seen in Colorado. And our, our rafts had bits of duct tape hanging off them. You know, and um, it's it's scary. Uh, we go through this canyon, and it looked like one of those movies. You know those movies where they're always trying to go that suspension bridge, you know, and the, and the good person's trying to get across it, you know, and and then the, they break through, right, and the board falls to the river, and <gasps> everybody goes like that. Unless you've seen a million movies, you're like, whatever, he's gonna make it. Uh, that's what I do. So don't watch movies with me. It's like, Whoa. Uh, anyway, that's the picture I get. All of humanity on the edge of an abyss. What self-righteousness does, what man-centered religion does, is it says, okay, you're, you're on the edge of the Grand Canyon. Here's a one-gallon bucket. Work really hard and fill it up. But what the gospel says is, but now. And you will probably never, ever be closer to salvation than when you stand at the edge. When you come face to face with this, I will not save myself. I am not a good person. I am not righteous on my own. I I stand condemned. All my good deeds, uh, when they're compared to Christ, are filthy rags. You're never closer to salvation. And I think our Savior is when you stand there and you you hear those words. But now... And so verse 21, we'll spend our time on that uh, this morning. Uh, And and the sermon on this sentence, I got it in quotes because I stole it from someone I don't know, I think. But after a long track through the darkness of human depravity, sin, and failure, the sun rises with overwhelming brilliance 
as the righteousness of God is manifested. Manifested. Uh, revealed, some of your Bibles will say, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested, it's been revealed. We see it. We grasp it. Now, uh, we use that word in the very beginning of the study, right? In, in verse 118, chapter 1, verse 18, uh, Paul writes, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. And when we went through that, uh, I said, Christian, uh, this, this actual understanding that the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven, it actually gives the Christian security and comfort and keeps us from despair. When we see things going horrifically, maybe even in our own families, our own church, our own denomination, our, our, our country, when we see things happening horrifically, we don't say, where is God? We say, no, God's wrath is being poured out on people who deny his existence, who deny his word, who deny his spirit, who lead others away from him. God's wrath is being poured out, and we are watching it. We're not watching it with uh, fiddling while Rome is burning. We are watching it, and we are asking, oh, Lord Jesus, rescue. Oh, Lord Jesus, save. But God's wrath is being revealed, and then here comes chapter 3. God's righteousness is being revealed. So it's important for us to remember that, that the Christian has this wonderful opportunity to live life with both of those things being revealed. I see God's wrath, and yet God's righteousness is given. It is revealed. In chapter 3, verse 21, God intervenes, God reveals, and God unites. First, God intervenes. God intervenes at least in three ways, uh, just in these two words. But now, he intervenes kind of logically. So when Paul says, but now, he said, you've, you've, come, you've come to the edge of this abyss. You've come to the edge of this canyon. You've come to the edge of yourself. Logically, what is next? And, and there's two paths. I mean, it's, it's quite, quite simple. There's a path into the abyss, stepping in on your own, saying I'm good enough on my own. Or there's the path of God's righteousness. There's the path of saying there has to be, if there is not something that will save me and rescue, I'm, I am lost. And so logically it steps in there. Genesis 18, we're not going to go there this morning, but Genesis 18 is a wonderful account of Abraham bargaining with God. He is bargaining with God that God would not destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. I mean, it's a beautiful picture of a priesthood of a believer, right? He, he had moved away from the city because God's wrath had been revealed and it would be revealed. Like, that's not a good place for me and my family. We saw what happened to Lot. Uh, so Abraham had been off there, but he wasn't like, yeah, go get them, God. He was like, God, will you save them? And then he does this, does this bargain with God, if you remember the story. He's like, what if there's 50 righteous people? Are you going to sweep the righteous away with the unrighteous? And, and so we get a, a, a kind of a small picture into the nature of God and his righteousness. No, uh, I will not destroy the righteous with the unrighteous. And, and yes, I will count the righteousness of one to the account of another. And then when the sacrificial system gets full-blown, we see that that's God's plan. When we sin, we, we would, we, they would come to the temple and they would say, what, what will take away this guilt and pain? And, and the priest would say, well, our God has somehow in his economy said, uh, the blood of, a, of an innocent will pay for the blood of the wicked. And so all along, God had said, uh, my righteousness will be revealed. It's being revealed slowly. 
And then the apostle, as a Jew, as a rabbi, as a Pharisee, says, but now I've seen it. I've seen it. This, this, is, this is it. This is, this is what we were, you know, we, we came to the abyss and we had the law of God and we had all the sacraments and, and, and all, all the feasts and all the things and all the rules that, that somehow was going to get us across. But now we see Christ. So God intervenes logically. Um, God intervenes chronologically. Now the time has come. And so the, the verb tenses are different from um, 117, where the, the 118, where the, the wrath of God is being revealed. That's a present tense verb saying, right now what you're experiencing, what you're seeing in the world is the wrath of God. But when we get to this, we have a perfect tense verb. And so uh, just a little English grammar, the, the perfect tense is an action that happens that has ongoing ongoing results so he said now it's been manifested it happened in in time and space and reality jesus flesh and blood the son of god he ate and he drank and he died uh it happened uh he's been revealed and there's ongoing benefit and blessing to that it happens he intervenes eschatologically so that's a big churchy word uh it just means uh in, in the future, the end of, of, of time. Uh, we now enter into a new time. So when you read in the, in the New Testament, in these last days, right, what the writers are saying there, that Christ, uh, by his ascension, um, ushered in what we call the last days. Stage one, stage two, towards glory. Um, it's funny, uh, human history is divided by that, isn't it? We have B.C. and A.D., right? If you read anything now, it's B.C.E. Have you seen that? B.C.E.? It'll say B.C.E., and it's, it's because secular scholars are saying before the Christ event. Um, so you, you see B.C.E., because I don't want to say he's Christ, but there was this event that happened in human history. For the Christian, it's B.C., and it's A.A. Not necessarily A.D., it's after the ascension. Right? He, 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 he died, he rose again, he ascended to the Father. And so all of our time is in these two things. And so, but now we see the end, end of time, the, end, the last days being ushered in by Christ. God intervenes and then God reveals. So when he intervenes, the second part of that sentence says, the righteousness of God has been manifest apart from the law. So what is he saying there? Uh, how we become right Human beings want to be right. We don't just like to be forgiven. We want to be right. We want to feel right in and of ourselves. We want to go to bed thinking, uh, I, I'm, I'm, I'm okay. I'm, I'm, I'm right. I've not just been forgiven, but I've, 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 I'm right. And so he says, now the righteousness of God has been revealed apart from the law. Now he's not saying the law doesn't matter. He's saying that the righteousness that a Christian can now claim as their own comes to them not through the law, but through the grace of Jesus Christ. The righteousness of God, it is a thing. It, the, the, the righteousness of God, the rightness, everything about Christ and His person is right. Um, he is the promised deliverer. He is the gate, the shepherd, the way, the truth, and the life. He is completely holy. 
He is a spotless Lamb of God. He is sent to take away the sins of the world. He is the infinite good. The righteousness of God. Right? I mean, the only way I can think of it is to you know, these sports illustrations. Right? You see an athlete running and doing maybe high hurdles. Right? And you just you see how it's supposed to be done. Right? And then you go on Instagram and it's everybody falling down, tripping, dropping the baton, you know, all the things that we laugh at. You think about the righteousness of God being absolute perfection and he puts it in human form. He, he takes human flesh upon himself and everything is right about him. And so when John writes later on, he says, you know, we have seen, this, this is who we are proclaiming, what we've seen, what we have touched the very real, physical Jesus. The righteousness of God in a person. Not the righteousness of God in, in tablets of stone, but the righteousness of God in flesh and blood. That, that's how God has manifested. He's not saying the stone doesn't matter, but the stone is fleshed out in the person. Uh, it's been manifested. It's made clear. We've seen it. It's been shown to us. God is revealing Himself in Christ. Uh, I, and I think you know this, but there's nothing about Jesus in, in the New Testament. There's nothing about Him that's not God the Father-like. You know, it's not two different gods. It's not the mean, nasty, old man God, get off my grass, and the wonderful Jesus, I love you, and I'm, I'm here for you, and I don't care who you are. They're the same. One God in three persons, the same so what we see in Jesus is the manifestation of the Father. He says it really clearly in John 14. Philip says, Lord, will you show us the Father? And it'll be enough for us. Jesus says, have, I've been with you so long and you don't know me, Philip. Whoever's seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? So God's righteousness, it's been manifest. And it's a righteousness, thirdly, apart from the law. Apart from the law, it is achieved not by ceremonial law, not by our baptism, not by the sinner's prayer. It is achieved by faith. Jesus wasn't righteous just because he went to the temple to pay for his sins and have the guilt temporarily transferred to a bull or goat. Jesus was righteous because he was perfect. So this is what Paul fought against. When he said the Christians were taking all, the, all these sacramental things and these feasts and these dietary laws. You wonder why he was so angry about it when he wrote the letters to the churches. It was because you've been given the real thing. You've been given Christ. And you still think you're going to be made righteous by doing this, by doing this, by doing that. It's a righteousness that we receive apart from the law. Lastly, God unites so in 321, again, it's this, it's this hinge between stage one and stage two. He writes, the law and the prophets bear witness to it. So especially in our communities, folks, we, we've got to not allow the thought that the gospel is God's plan B. It, 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 it wasn't that Jesus came and he was really, really good. And if only, if only they would have crowned him king and not crucified him, the world would be better but really, in some manner, Jesus failed. And so God brings plan B. The gospel, God's plan B. It's God's plan A. 
before time began. It was God's plan. Genesis 3 says, I will, I will send him, and he will crush the head of Satan, and Satan will bruise his heel. Uh, so at the very opening chapters of the Bible, we have a promise of a Messiah. And so that's what he's saying. The, God, you know, the law and the prophets, they bear witness to Christ. They long to look. They long to know. What does that mean for us? Christian, find comfort in these words. But now. When you are aware of your sin your shortcomings, your failures. When you've willfully even gone against what God has made clear that you should do and you should be, when you face the chasm, but now. You've probably seen the movie where man breaks woman's heart. I do like some movies, you know, but I mean, it's the typical movie, right? Man breaks woman's heart and uh, she wants to kick him out. And what does he say? I'll make that up to you, I swear. Oh, baby, I will make this the job of my entire life. If it takes my whole life, baby, I will make it up to you, I swear. Isn't it beautiful that that's not our gospel? It is not the Christian looking to God and saying, Oh, baby, give me another chance, God. I will make it up to you. I swear. God, give me five more years and I'll have five good years to take care of those five awful years. I'll make it up to you, God. I swear. No, that's not the gospel. That's a bucket of water going into the Grand Canyon and thinking it's going to work. Our gospel says, you faced, you faced the abyss. And our God says, now you're ready to hear the good news. Oh, Christian, uh, let's not be afraid of that bad news. Oh, Christian, uh, we, we have to do the work, even in this life, of remembering the abyss, right? We, we, we bring it up. We do it in our confession of sin every week. It, 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 it's purposeful. It doesn't, it's not to scare us. It's not to make us feel unsaved. It's to remind us. And we have to be reminded because as the Spirit starts to work into us and as we compare ourselves to other people, we start to think, God's accepting me because I'm just a little bit above average. I'm just a little bit better than those people. Oh, Christian, but now. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Oh, Lord, I pray that it ministers to all of our hearts in a deep way. How wonderful and how beautiful for you to dangle us over. As Jonathan Edwards says, it's like a spider over a flame. The only rescue is from above. And Father, thank you for where we, all these individuals in this room, where we stand, that we've got a better picture than the prophets. We know Christ. Oh, his disciples and your word and your spirit have testified that he is the righteousness of God. And now prepare our hearts for this sacrament that in faith, when we take the bread, we are believing absolutely that the righteousness of God manifested in the person and the work of Jesus Christ, it belongs to us. We face that abyss and we say, I am with Christ. And there is nothing that will separate me from God when I am in Christ. When we drink the cup, 
Father, some of us Christians, we just tend to wallow in our guilt and we just kept, keep thinking we should be better, we should do better. And sometimes it's in our pride and our arrogance. We think more highly of ourselves and we think at this point in life we shouldn't need Christ anymore. We shouldn't need the gospel. We should be able to function now on our own. And Lord, will you make this cup of wine the powerful blood of Christ removing guilt and shame? That we might, Father, with, with great rejoicing, hold on to the righteousness of Christ that is given not through law, but through faith for all who believe, for the Jew first and the Gentile. We ask this in Jesus Christ's name, for his sake. Amen.